The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. The Bible says that there were no kings on the throne in Israel, and everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. And the problem with Israel is that they didn't have the king on the throne of their heart, the Lord should have been on the throne of their heart. They were involved in idolatry, and we can see that throughout. Uh, We can see them pulled aside and worshiping other gods, being disobedient to God. God reminds them often, and then He sends these judges, these individuals, into their lives to remind them first of what God has done for them, and then to remind them what their response should be to God's salvation in their lives. And a lot of times, uh, that's what we forget. And so here today, we've come together for maybe much uh, not too different of a reason. We've come together to be how many need to be reassured today and reminded of God's faithfulness in your life. You need to be reminded of how good God has been. You need to be reminded of where salvation is rooted in, in Jesus Christ. And while we may know these truths, we need the reminders, don't we? While we may know what God is or who God is through His Word, we need the reminders. And so today, I was thankful for that new song that we sang. I just leaned over to my wife. It would have been like we, we aligned them together. Uh, we sang about blessed assurance, and today's message is about assurance and God's ability to reassure us and how God does that in our lives. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I have struggled with assurance. I've struggled with uh, a God's Maybe not his ability to keep me, but my faith in his ability to keep me. I know God is able, but how many sometimes, there's times in your life where you haven't necessarily felt the feeling of being saved, being a child of God. Sometimes our feelings betray us and difficulties come in our lives and we go, am I a child of God or not? Am I going to heaven or not? Is God with me? Is he present with me now or has he left me, neglected me? And if, uh, if you've been saved any number of years, you've been born again, you know that this is common in the Christian life for us to struggle with assurance, struggle with our faith being rooted in Christ's ability to keep us and to save us. And God deals with that specifically in the life of Gideon in chapter 7. We began chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 last week, and we talked about God's, God's strength being made perfect in our weakness And it wasn't the strength of the army that was going to bring victory, but it was the strength of God that was going to bring victory. And there was a reduction of self that was necessary. They had so many uh, uh, in their military force, and God reduced the army down to 300. And the Bible tells us in verse 2, the reason for that was not just so there could be some great story to tell here. The reason for that was not to exalt Gideon or to exalt Israel or to exalt 300 mighty men of valor. The reason for this reduction was so that Israel would not boast in themselves, but they would boast in God. The same reason is why God has brought salvation to us in the way that he's brought it to us, so that we would understand that salvation is what? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Because there's great danger when we boast in ourselves. And we need to understand that salvation is in God and not in us. If we think it's in ourselves and when we fail, then our faith is in ourselves, and we think, well, I'm not secure because I've behaved wrongly or I've acted in a way that doesn't please the Lord. And so we can see that, and this week we're going to look at, again, assurance. And as we look at the text, uh, we could probably say, okay, now it's time for sure for these 300 to go into battle, but not quite. God, again, speaks to Gideon. And he, this time, his purpose is not to remove his potential for self-boasting, but to give him assurance of the victory. Look at verse number 9 and what God says to Gideon. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. What is God telling him? He's reminding him of what he's already said. He's reminding him of his promises. He's assuring him that what he has said is going to come to pass. How many believe that the Lord is coming back for his church? How many need to be assured of that? 
as you look at the news, as you look at this world, as you look at the circumstances of your life, you could start to think in your mind, is he? Has he left us? Are we alone? Is it ever going to take place? When is salvation coming? When is that completion of the journey of our faith going to take place? And many of us, we understand, we don't want to see God through death. We'd rather see God through his coming. And yet we understand that we have this assurance through God because of his word. And so God is telling him again in verse number 9, I'm going to give Midian, Gideon, I'm going to give them into your hands. But with wonderful thoughtfulness, the king of the universe says this in verse number 10. If you're afraid to attack, if you're afraid to go down to the camp and listen to what they're saying, notice what he says. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Farah, thy servant, down to the host. Why is God bringing assurance to his life? Because he knows that Gideon is afraid. And before we judge Gideon too harshly in his fear, how many too would be afraid if you were about to face an army that was like locusts and you were 300? If you're about to face an army under-resourced, undermanned, and you're about to go down to this army who the Bible describes as like locusts who just come in, I mean, there's so many they can't be numbered. I mean, even the 37,000, the 33,000, uh, even the 3,000, even the 300, uh, he's thinking, boy, uh, I, we need more. There's no way that we could overtake these Midianites. These Midianites aren't afraid of us. Why should they be? I mean, for years they've now oppressed us and discouraged us and left us impoverished. They've taken everything from us. And God is dealing with the fear that's in Gideon's heart. At first sight, what greets Gideon is terrifying. The Bible tells us that the Midianites and their allies are thick as locusts. They're camels, they're beasts, which they have used to subjugate Israel, cannot be counted with the sand on the seashore. Verse 12. This is an innumerable army. I mean, they're resourced. They've got animals ready for battle. They're ready for battle. And they're here, and they can't be counted. How is this going to encourage Gideon to go and attack these with his 300? How is this an encouragement? A lot of times God's encouragements can sometimes appear first as a discouragement. Because we look at them, we say, how in the world is this going to help me to do what I need to do? And God sends him to a camp with, uh, just as a man, just coincidentally, as a man there in the camp, look at verse 13, is telling a friend about a dream that he had, where a loaf of barley struck a Midianite tent with such force that it collapsed. Now, I've had some weird dreams, and I'm sure you have too, but I've never dreamed a dream like uh, a loaf of barley ro rolling down a hill and knocking my house down. But this is a dream that he had. I, I don't know if he thought he had pizza too late at night. I'm not sure what he thought the reason for this, this dream was. But this guy's having a nightmare. They're about to go into battle. They know it with Israel. And there's a symbol. This loaf of barley, which clearly to him symbolizes Gideon, because that's what he says. He says, this is none other than Gideon. And he's the loaf of barley. And he's going to come rolling down in this valley. And we're going to be destroyed. And he's afraid, and he's telling others about it. And the fear is, is kind of gathering there amongst the troops. And this is, of course, most unlikely. No one worries that a loaf of barley uh, might take down their tent, just as the Midianites would have not been overly concerned about 37,000 men from a nation they had terrorized for eight years. This is, this is the content of the dream. And so his friend responds, Look at verse number 14. Notice what he says. And his fellow answered, his friend, this is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Notice what he comes to the conclusion of. This is the interpretation of the dream. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the hosts. What is the conclusion that he's brought to? The conclusion is God's word, God's promises. He is shown by God that God is going to bring victory to the Israelites. And what can we learn from this? Well, we, when we know we are weak, we need to remember that God is strong. When we know we are weak, we need to remember that God is strong. How many uh, last week you heard that you were weak and you needed that reminder because you thought you were strong? A lot of times we are met with disappointment in our lives because 
We think that our strength is enough to get the job done, and then we find out that it's not. We think that we're educated enough or that we're strong enough or resourced enough. And God reminds us that it's not in our resources and it's not in our abilities, it's not in our education that we find salvation or hope, but that it's in Christ and He is our strength. And we looked at the life of Paul and how God's strength is made perfect in our weakness that even sometimes when our flesh is made weak through means that God allows and circumstances that God allows in our life, in Paul's case, it was a thorn in his flesh. And he said three times, God, please take this away from me. I'm in pain. I'm in difficulty. God, I'd be better off in ministry if I was whole, if I was healthy, if I was strong. And God said, no, no, you're better off with this thorn in your flesh. My grace is sufficient for you. If you don't have this thorn, you're going to be exalted above measure. You're going to think more highly of yourself than you should think. And so I'm going to allow this weakness in your life so that you trust in me. Boy, we know that God knows what weaknesses to send in our lives so that we stop trusting in ourselves. Some of us know that we're just really quick to boasting in ourselves and pride in ourselves and our abilities, and we think we can get the job done. We think that we're able to accomplish it, and so we don't rely on God. We don't trust God. We don't obey God. We press forward on our own, and then we meet with failure, and we go, why in the world am I not succeeding? I'm sharp. I'm able. I'm educated. Why can't I get the job done? And God says, because... It's not in you to get the job done. It's in me to get the job done. Salvation is of the Lord. Victory is in Christ. And we can only do all things through Christ as he strengthens us. And God is strong. And we also need to be reminded of the truth that those things which stand opposed to us are not as strong as they often appear. And this is what God's doing here. He's looking at an army that appears to be so strong, but God is showing him that in an army that looks to be strong, they're not as strong as they appear to be. Sometimes we look at our opposition and we think, boy, it's so strong, it's so heavy, it's insurmountable. And God says, no, it's not as strong as you think it is. Don't trust appearances. How many know as Christians we walk by faith and not by sight? When we look at the things that are in this world, we look at our enemy, we say, boy, he's so strong, he's so resourced, It seems to be impossible. Why should we even resist? Why not just go with the flow? Because it's too much to resist. We're in a minority as believers. Bible-believing Christians, can I just submit to you today, in America are in the minority. People who believe God's Word. And I'm not talking about who just say they believe God's Word, but people who are living by faith through God's Word in their lives. Being obedient, that's a minority. By the way, they've always been a minority. Bible-believing Christians have been persecuted. They've always been in the minority. And it seems like the enemy is stronger than what it would be. Satan cannot force us to sin. The power of idols can be broken. Those who mock or persecute us are often conflicted and broken beneath their confident exterior. And God graciously gives Gideon the opportunity to see this. This vast army that's as thick as locusts Underneath their armor are trembling in fear. Underneath their armor, their hearts are broken. And they knew what Gideon is only now convinced of, that the God of Gideon is going to bring Gideon victory over them. They know that. You know, it's sad when we catch up to the faith of our enemies. Let me tell you today, the devil knows that God is greater than he is. The question is, do you know that? Uh, The enemy knows that he's defeated. The question is, do you know that? He understands that God's power is over him and that he can do nothing without God's permission. The question is, church, do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you operate in that way? Let's look at number one as we discuss assurance. God is the great reassurer. God is the great reassurer. Notice Gideon's response in verse number 15. His response is to worship God. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped. God has gone ahead of him in every way. And all he can do in response is praise him. He trusts in God to give victory 
and that spurs him into action. He returns to the camp, verse 15. He calls Israel. He says, get up. The Lord has given the Midianites into your hands. It's time to go to battle. Victory is ours. We now have a leader that's confident not in himself, but confident in God, believing God's word. Boy, we see that in stories like David and Goliath. David had no confidence in his ability with the sling, nor confidence in his ability with a sword. Notice he told even his enemy, I'm not coming to you with weapons of our hands. I'm coming to you with faith in my God. And that faith is going to bring me victory. Do you believe that faith in God brings victory? Do you believe that faith in God brings victory? Then why do we not have more faith in God? Why do we live defeated lives as Christians? Why do we live in weakness? Why do we live in fear of the enemies that are around us? Why are we not assured? We have a God that is the great reassurer. First, God is the great reassurer. He's the only one who takes initiative here. Gideon needs this visit. He needs to see the quaking enemy in the camp in order to get him to worship and to trust and to attack. But he doesn't ask God for this reassurance. God offers it to him. God takes the initiative. And that's why we know that God goes out of his way to reassure his people. God goes out of his way to reassure us. How many have found that to be true in your life? That even when you don't ask for assurance, God sends assurance to you. God reminds you. He tells you. He shows up. He reassures you that you can be confident in him and often it is in our weakness and in our ability, and God sends the message, and God sends the promise, and God sends the reassurance to us, and God lets us hear something or see something or experience something, and we come away from that and say, boy, how great our God is. He is reassuring me because I need that reassurance. He takes the initiative. God goes out of His way to reassure His people. The whole book of 1 John, for instance is written to assure us that we might know that we have come to know Him. That's what 1 John is. It's all about assurance. If you need assurance, read 1 John. If you're, if you're trembling in your faith, if you need assurance of your faith in God, read 1 John. It'll tell you how assured you should be in the Lord. The Holy Spirit works in us to assure us that we're God's children. That's what Romans 8.16 tells us. Even illustratively in relationships... A good husband reminds his wife, I love you and I'm here for you, and particularly reassures her of this in difficult times. He never says, I told you I was committed to you on our wedding day. You should know that I love you. He just continues to reassure her of his love today. Isn't that what love does? Because if you love someone, you are willing to assure them of your love. And God is the same. God doesn't scold us and say, hey, I told you when you got saved in the moment we entered in a relationship that I love you. Shame on you for not knowing that I love you. No, he just comes to us constantly and says, hey, I just want to remind you how much I love you. How many times has God reminded you of his love for you? Boy, I think that when I fail and God comes not to catch me in my sin, not to expose me or to embarrass me, but rather to come alongside of me to restore me and to reconcile me in my fellowship to him. And he comes alongside and he says, I love you. I love you. How many are glad that Jesus loves you today? Boy, we should be reminded of that more and more. We should see his love in our love for one another. As we gather together, are we not supposed to love one another with Christ's love? Christ's love in us enables us to love each other. And that kind of love is a reminder of how much God loves you. Do you know today that God loves you? That He loves you with an everlasting love? That He loves you with the kind of love that nothing can separate you from it? Nothing. Boy, there are all, things, all kinds of things that can come into our lives that can cause separation. But God's saying, hey, listen, I love you with a kind of love. There's nothing you can do that would cause you to be separated from my love for you. Boy, I failed God. How about you? Sometimes I feel like I've forsaken him, but he's never forsaken me. I, I like what the songwriter said, Though I forget him and wander away, still doth he love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. 
boy, when God reminds me of his love for him, I run back to him. You know, the prodigal son is not so much about the prodigal son. The, the prodigal son is more about the steadfastness of the father on the porch, isn't it? That when the son returns home, what does he find? A faithful father, right where he was when he left him. And what is he doing? Waiting for him to return, willing to restore him. And he wants to, and he desires to, and he, he's ready to. That's our God. You know what the devil wants you to believe this morning? Oh, you've done too much to disappoint God. You've been too unfaithful. You haven't been consistent enough. You're going to have to earn his love back. No, friend. You don't have to earn his love. He's offered to you eternally. He's forgiven you eternally through Christ. You don't have to earn his love. You don't have to earn his acceptance. He just loves you. The devil wants you to think you have to make it up to him and you've got to try harder and you've got to be better. I'm going to tell you this morning, you can't try harder and you can't be better, but I'll tell you what does make us better. His love, his love makes us better. His love is what purifies us and sanctifies us. His love is not the love of this world. It's not lust. It's not some desire to get for myself. It's sacrificial. God so loved the world that he gave his only, his only treasure his closest desire, his only begotten son. It's a sacrificial love. If you want to know how much God loves you, look at the cross today. An empty cross. What does it depict? The suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life but yet died the worst kind of death. Aren't you glad he's not on the cross anymore? We're not talking about a savior who's defeated. We lift up our heads in hope because we have a Savior who's resurrected. And He loves you. He loves you eternally. You say, why do you keep telling us that? Listen, it's not just children who need to sing, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. How are we reassured of his love? When we look into his word, we can see how much he loves us. God is the great reassurer. He goes out of his way to reassure his people. And if you love someone, you're willing to assure them of your love, and God is the same. But I also want you to see here in the text that, number two, God may ask us to take risks on the way to assurance. God may ask us to take risks on the way to assurance. How many found it odd that God said, hey, Gideon, are you afraid? Go down into the camp of the Midianites, your enemies. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do when I'm afraid. I want to climb down into the camp where the, where the, the army is so innumerable and could squash me. I want to go down there by myself, and I want to survey. He's called to go down and spy on the enemy. God tells him to go, and he says, hey, Gideon, if you're afraid, take your servant with you. And what does Gideon do in the next verse? He takes his servant with him. Why? Because he's afraid. He doesn't want to go by himself. This is the same Gideon that threw down the altars of Baal at night because he was afraid of the, uh, the men of the town. He was afraid of his own father. This is the same Gideon who was threshing behind the wine press so he didn't get caught. And God appeared to him and said, hey, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, who, me? I think you've got the wrong guy, God. I'm not a mighty man of valor. God keeps reassuring Gideon of who he is in his eyes, even though Gideon is not that way in his actions. Aren't you glad that God sees us in a way that our actions don't depict? Are you with me? God doesn't see who you are in your actions. He sees who you are in your identity in Christ. That's how God looks at you. God looks at you as sinless. Boy, that's an impossible way for us to look at ourselves. But God sees you, and he sees his sacrifice of his son. He sees forgiveness. He doesn't remember your sins anymore. He's put them as far away from him as the east is from the west. And when he looks at you, he says, that's my child. That's my son. Isn't it interesting how parents look at their children? Everybody else is looking at their children and saying, what a spoiled little brat. And the parents are looking, oh, I'm so proud of them. What a wonderful child. Isn't it interesting what love does? They say love is blind, but truly love is forgiving. Love is forgiving. When you look at someone that you love, you don't see the flaws. You don't see the errors. 
That's why, ladies, you need to stop asking your husband, do I look fat in this? How does this outfit make me look? And he says, I, I like how you look. And you're a liar. Don't put us in that position. We're trying to answer you in love. Some of you men are stupid and you answer honestly. But when we look at someone that we love, our eyes are not drawn to their flaws, but our eyes are drawn to favor. We're favored in God's eyes because he loves us. I'm glad that God doesn't just love me and, you know, you know I, I, sometimes Christians, they, well, you know, people in church, I, I'm commanded to love them, but I don't have to like them. Wrong. You don't understand what love is then. If you think love doesn't lead to like, then you don't know what love is. Love causes us to like the unlikable. Love causes us to be kind to those who deserve no kindness. Love causes us not to see evil. What does love do? Thinks no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, it beareth all things, it believeth all things, it hopeth all things, it endureth all things. Charity, love, God's love, suffers long and is kind. Boy, if we look at the love of God, we understand how He sees us that way. Without love, we're nothing. And that's why we understand we need assurance so much, because we live in a world that tells us we're assured through our looks. We're assured through our status. We're assured through our social uh, uh, abilities. We're, We're assured through our talents and our giftedness. That's how we get acceptance from people. We have acceptance with God through Jesus Christ alone. That's how we're accepted into the beloved. See, God often gives us what we need as we do what he has asked us to do. We can, we, God often gives us what we need as we do what he asks us to do. You know, going into the enemy camp is dangerous for Gideon and his servant, but it's the place where God gives him confidence. It's the place where God leads him to worship. It's the place where God stirs him to action. God calls him, before he gets assured, to take a risk. Jesus commanded his disciples to go and what? Make disciples of all nations. And then he promised after that, if you go and you baptize and you preach the gospel, he says this, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. What's he telling them? Your assurance in understanding my presence is going to be felt most in your obedience. Your assurance in understanding of my presence is going to be felt most in your obedience. God's saying in your going and your preaching the gospel, in you doing the mission that I've called you to do, church, That's when you will feel my presence the most. You know when we don't feel God's presence? It's usually in our disobedience, isn't it? When we don't obey God's word, we feel abandoned. When we don't obey God's word, we don't feel God's presence. When we don't obey God's word, listen, I'm going to tell you today, there's not a person who just sits home from church disobedient to God that feels the presence of God. Because you can't feel the presence of God in disobedience but you feel the presence of God in obedience. It's not about the building, and it's not about the atmosphere, nor is it about the entertainment, nor the order of service. What is it about? It's about your obedience to God. When you obey God by faith, and you do what God says, even sometimes what's illogical to you becomes logical. If you want to feel abandoned, disobey God. If you want to feel assurance, be obedient to Him. When you trust God, you'll feel His assuring love. When you trust God, you'll feel His assuring love. Presence. Now we have to be careful because assurance is not about our feelings at all, is it? A feel, uh, our assurance is about our faith. It's about our trust. But let me ask you a question. Can we truly have faith without obedience? Can we truly have faith without obedience? The Bible says if a man hears the word and doesn't do what the word says, what? He's a liar. You, you can't have faith. You're, you're not trusting God if you're not doing what His Word says. You're not trusting God if you're not obeying God. Does a child who doesn't listen to his parents trust his parents? No. How do we know a child trusts us? When, we, when he does what we say, when she does what we say, even if they don't understand. They're saying, well, I'm going to trust what they say because they have more experience and better insight and, and, and a better perspective and more wisdom. While I don't understand, I'm going to trust them. And there's assurance that comes in that relationship. 
because of that. What happens when a child doesn't obey their parents? There's broken fellowship. There's distrust in the relationship. And as a result, what happens? Well, there's, there's a disunity, even in the home. And the feelings of that come out, don't they? But when we trust, we understand, and we, we, we feel what faith brings to us. And that's hope. God often gives us what we need as we do what He has asked us to do. The second thing we need to understand here is we can find that we lack assurance of God's presence with us and power for us because we never take a risk and do something bold in obedience to Him. In other words, we never step out in faith and find Him there. You know, maybe for you today, the key to your assurance in the Lord is a bold step of faith. For some of you today, and there's people present today that are going to follow Christ in baptism. You know why baptism is so important? Because it's not about you, it's about obedience. In other words, you say, what do I have to get to, to, to where I qualify for baptism? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? You qualify. You say, well, I'm not really good enough, and I'm not really this enough, and I'm really not that enough. It's not about you. It's about whether you're take, willing to take a step of faith and say, I'm going to commit to this life and following Jesus. And I trust God. And it's not about me. It's not about what I've done or not done. You don't need, listen, you don't need a, a class. You don't need a, a program. You don't, you don't need any of that. If you look at the Bible, the people that followed in baptism followed the same day they believed. They trusted God, and in the same day they were added to the church, they were baptized. They were baptized. Why did they do that? They wanted to boldly declare. It's just like if you truly love someone and you want to enter into a relationship with them in marriage, you're not afraid of the ceremony. You want, it, you, you want people, to, you're inviting people to come. Come see. I, I want people to see. I want them to know. I want them to know how much I love this person that I'm committed to them. I'm not afraid to slip on the wedding ring. I'm not afraid for people to see that I'm married. I'm in a relationship. Listen, it's a great step. Some of you need to take that step today. Others of you, you've already taken that step, but how many have found out that's the first step of many in obedience in the Christian life? It's the first step of many. It's not the last step. You've got to take more steps. Every day you take a step. See, the relationship you've entered into with Christ is a daily walk with God, not a Sunday walk with God. Some of us, we like our Sunday strolls with God when really we should have a daily walk with God. Well, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to spend time with God today. Spend time with God tomorrow and the next day and the next day. This is being obedient, coming together with His church. We do that upon the first day of the week, just like the early church did, in obedience to the Word of God. But here's the truth. Your relationship should extend far beyond today into every day, in every moment, as you exercise your faith in God. We can find that we lack assurance of God's presence with us, and power for us because we never take a risk and do something bold in obedience to Him. We never step out in faith and find Him there. Sometimes we're praying and we're feeling sorry for ourselves, and God's saying, why don't you just get up and do what I told you to do? You say, well, God, just answer my prayer. God, God just meet my needs. God, take away this circumstance. And God's saying, no, no, no. Take a step of faith. Follow me, and you'll find me. Follow me and you'll find me. What did God say? Those that seek me shall find me when they search for me with their whole heart. How many know that our quest and search for God and following God is often one that requires risk? It requires risk. Christianity that requires nothing from you is not biblical Christianity. Are you with me? Christianity that requires nothing from you. I'm not talking about for salvation. I'm talking about for discipleship. Jesus' call to discipleship is let every man take up his cross and follow me. What does that mean? Commitment, sacrifice, love, the kind of love that he has for us. Lastly today, we like Gideon are in repeated need of assurance. We like Gideon are in repeated need of assurance. I used to think this. When I'm a strong Christian, I'll no, no longer doubt my relationship with God. When I'm a strong Christian, God, help me to never doubt my relationship with you. I used to also think that when I was a strong Christian, I'd stop sinning. I found both to be false. You know what they were? Those were just ways to build myself up 
so that I could have more confidence in me, not so that I could have more confidence in God. God is good when he allows us to doubt because our doubts are meant to push us to him. Doubts come from life. They're natural. They're normal parts in our lives. As we go through, listen, sometimes in our Christianity, some Christians, they go, oh, if I, you know, I'm doubting, I'm doubting. I've heard people say things like, I've never doubted God. And I'm like, you're a liar. You're a liar. We've all doubted God. You're not alone if you've doubted. You're not alone if you've faltered. Can I remind you, the Bible says that a just man falls seven times and gets back up again? That the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. The Christian life is often a series of falling and getting back up again. Are you with me? Some of us were like, oh, I don't ever want... Listen, I'm with you. I don't ever want to fall. But how many are glad that when you do fall, he is there to pick you up? That's like thinking that a child is never going to fall or that you're never going to have an accident or a mistake will never be had. Listen, it's really about us, isn't it, when we think that way. We want to have this perfect picture of ourselves so that we can parade ourselves around like some great Christian that everybody should aspire to be like. Some of the greatest Christians in the world are some of the greatest failures in the world. Are you with me? They failed. Peter, the supposed head or the pastor of the first church, he denied Christ. He denied him. And he knew he was going to do it, and he did it anyway. God told him, hey, you're going to do this. And Peter said, no way, I'm not. And then Peter did it. How many would love that kind of intel on your life? Isn't that who we are? God could tell us, hey, you're going to fall. And you say, no, I'm not. And then you fall. It happens. We fail. We falter. But the truth is today that we need to be reassured of is that God never fails. And God never falters. And God never forsakes. And that's who our God is. And when do we learn that best? When we're down. When we're broken. We are in repeated need of assurance. He cannot sustain his direction of energy without repeated lessons and lots of confirmation of God's presence, guidance, and power. When we see the narrative here in Gideon, telescoped as it is, the impression that we're given here is that Gideon is very weak. He needed the angel to burn up his offering. He needed two miraculous fleece episodes and the Midianite dream and its interpretation before he would even attack. But if we think of our own spiritual history, we will see the very same thing. We often think, I'll never forget or doubt God again, and then very soon become indifferent or anxious again. How many resolutions to live radically for God have we made and not kept? We aren't any different from Gideon. We rarely relax and just trust Him. No matter what God does for us, our hearts are quite stubborn and find it very hard joyfully and confidently to trust and live by His promises. We need God's ongoing assurance and reminder that He is with us. But that begs the question to us as we finish up today. How does God assure us? God is one who is readily able and willing and often does But how does he assure us? Well, let's look at the text. The first way that he assures us is through his word. In Judges 7, verses 9 through 11, God comes and through his inspired scriptures, he says, I will give you victory. Remember my word, Gideon. When we read his word and especially his promises, we find that the Holy Spirit comes and makes those promises both real and sweet to us. How many know that if you need assurance today, a lot of times doubt comes from our lack of going to His Word? Can I ask you a question once again? I know I ask this a lot. This is a practical one for you. I want you to answer it in your heart. How often do you read His Word? How often do you read His Word? Sometimes that's a convicting question, isn't it? Because like you, I often fall back on my prior experience with God's Word. I already know God's Word. I've already read God's Word. I've read God's Word through dozens and dozens and dozens of times, from cover to cover. 
I've read it, I've read it, I've read it, I've memorized great portions of it. I know it, I know it, I know it. Why do I need to read it if I already know it? Because I need to be often reminded and reassured of God's presence in my life. And every time I open it, he reassures me. The devil's not afraid of a Christian who doesn't read God's word. Because the person who doesn't read God's word is not surrendered, submitted to God. Listen, the truth is, it's a simple habit, but it's a habit we often miss. Listen, you can eat right and exercise, and you might have bodily profit. But if you don't read this, you'll be spiritually stagnant. We, we need God's word. We need to get in it every single day. The danger for me, I've confessed this often, God, help me not to just read your word to present messages to your church. God, help me to read your word because I need your word personally in my life. I don't want to just read God's word. Listen, most of the messages that come, I know some of you think that I'm just sitting in my office thinking about you, planning on how I can publicly embarrass you through a message. I'm going to tell you this. There's not too many times where I'm not sitting in my office under full and complete conviction of God's spirit, looking at God's word and knowing that I'm a failure and how much I need God. Boy, the greatest kind of messages are messages that impact my heart before they're ever even spoken. That God has worked in me. This is the same way when you share God's word with others. What's the greatest kind of testimony? One that God reassured you through his word and through different things that have come into your life and you share that with someone else. Listen, God's working in us both the will and to do of his good pleasure and he assures us constantly through his word. Secondly, we see in our text that God assures us through other people. Here, God does not give Gideon his promise directly. Rather, he gives it through the mouth of another. Listen, it's important to have others who are close friends who can do this. People who spend time with and allow to encourage us about who we are as God's children and where we, uh, where, where we and our world are headed. Listen, that's what we need. That's why we need to gather. Listen, so many Christians are discouraged today because they don't fellowship enough with Christians. Can I just share something with you today? May we fellowship more, not just on Sunday. Are you with me? And daily from house to house. And daily from house to house. You know, some of you just need to have another, another family to your house and have a meal with them. You know why? Because if all your fellowship is unbelievers and all you're hearing about is what unbelievers do and how unbelievers act and, what, and that's the only experience that you're having, listen, you're going to be a very weak Christian. You know what you need? You need to be around other believers. You need other people in your life that are going to strengthen you. Hey, get around people who build you up in the Lord, not that tear your faith apart. Build, uh, build you up in Christ, not tear you down. People that affirm obedience to God, not mock it. Are you with me? There's a lot of people in this world that are going to mock your obedience to God. Don't spend your time with them. Listen, be kind, be friendly, share the gospel with them. I'm not saying don't sit at meat with them like Jesus did with publicans and sinners, but can I tell you that often people use that as an excuse and they blame Jesus for their fellowshipping with a bunch of lost people because they just want to act like lost people. Jesus wasn't with publicans and sinners so that they could influence him. He was with publicans and sinners so, they, he could, so he could influence them. What did he do? He confronted them with the word of God and their sinfulness. He sat with them and he reminded them of the gospel of Jesus. But you know what? You need to be strengthened through fellowship with other believers. Spend time with other believers. When's the last time you had a fellowship in your home with another family or family in the church, or just reach out to somebody. I, I need to be in fellowship. I need to have contact. Text each other. Call each other. Spend time. Listen, let's not burn the lines with gossip. Are you with us? With me? I mean, sometimes that's, we just spend all our time doing nonsense. We have so many great things that we can do together, church. And God wants us to fellowship together. A lot of times we craft experiences here, whether we're having cookouts or things, so that you can meet other Christians. And the reason why we want you to meet them, I don't want you to just know me. I want you to know the other great people that are here is the body of Christ. This is a wonderful family of God. I'm encouraged often. 
You know what shows me? Listen, somebody that's cold is somebody who doesn't want to be around other people in their church. I don't, I don't want to eat with them. I don't want to fellowship with them. I don't want to be around. Listen, don't excuse yourself every time we have a fellowship. What about the Lord's table? When's the last time you obeyed God and observed the Lord's table? Where, where is it in the scriptures that, that people in the church could just say, well, I don't need to take the Lord's table? Where are you taking it? Where are you experiencing it? Aren't we called to do it? Listen, we, we have a church where we often observe the Lord's table together. And you know what? It grieves my heart when I see people that just don't want to connect with it. They don't want to be a part of it. And it's sad. We need to be a part of these. We need to be encouraged by our, our uh, obedience and gathering and being together with one another. And then lastly, how does God assures, assure us? He assures us through circumstances of life. In a sense... Gideon just happens to be at the right place at the right time to hear this conversation. But of course, this isn't a coincidence. God has brought him to this place to hear these words to find reassurance. I am often amazed at where God brings reassurance to my life. It can even be through the words of someone that doesn't know God. It's amazing. I'm often reassured when I see others and circumstances that are in my life and how God is reassuring me of my faith and my trust in Him. Here's the last question. How do we know we've been reassured? How do we know we've been reassured? I believe we know we've been reassured when our response is like Gideon's. In verse number 15, God shows us that reassurance happens. It's at any time when we have been led to heartfelt praise and worship of God and radical, confident obedience to Him. That's how we know we've been reassured. What do you do when you've been reassured by God? Worship! Praise! Obey God! I mean, this is the response of someone who's confident in their relationship. Listen, many people, they don't have confidence in their relationships, and one of the worst places you can lack confidence is in your relationship with God. When you lack confidence in your relationship, you're not ready to praise, you're not ready to worship, nor are you ready to obey. When we come together to sing songs, church, in a service, it's not about your preference or my preference. It's not about whether you like the song or don't like the song. People come to church and they pick churches on the basis of their preferences instead of on the basis of the Word of God. Let me just share something with you. There are a lot of churches in town, and not all of them are bad. Some of them are great. But I'm going to say this to you. If you're looking for entertainment, you're not looking for church. If you're looking for social clubs, you're not looking for church. This is not a social club. We're not an entertainment company. This is a body of believers. Our job is to gather together and worship God. You know why we worship and praise God? Because He commands us to. Sing to God. Listen, I love this morning the worship that we shared together. Not because of the tunes or the excellence in which they were presented, although I enjoyed that. But because I got to gather with you and sing praises to God. That's important. Teach your kids how important that is by being here for worship. That it's not just optional. That's something that we do because we need to. We must do it. And because as a result of it, God is praised and magnified and He works in us. And He does work in our hearts. How do we know we've been reassured? It's at any time when we have been led to heartfelt praise and worship of God and radical, confident obedience to Him. What's the end of the story? A great one. What happens? Gideon tells them, get up, but they don't march down the hill. Gideon crafts a really strange battle plan, and God gives it to him. But it seems to imply that this is mostly Gideon's idea. It's not like Jericho where God told them to do this. Gideon says, I've got a plan. It's risky, but we're going to do it. He tells them to take a pitcher and a light, and he tells them at the time when they blow the trumpet that they're all going to shout with a loud voice 
the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and they're going to break their pitchers and let their light shine. And it's going to appear as if all the Midianites are surrounded with the army. And the Bible tells us as a result what happens. The Midianites awake. Again, Gideon shows he does his best work at night. Some of you can, uh, can uh, really align with him. It was at night that he threw down the altars of Baal. And here at night, he brings the army to battle. They get up and what do they do in their confusion? They start killing each other, thinking that they're fighting the enemy in the dark. All they can sense is that they're surrounded by the enemy, that this seems to be an innumerable army. It's playing on their fears. They know that God is going to bring victory because they've heard about Gideon, they've heard about this army, and they know that it's going to... Now they're, they're running... They're fleeing. Thousands and thousands are fleeing from 300 who are standing on the top of a hill with a pitcher and a light. And what happens? Look at verse 25 and we're done. I want you to see this because this kind of brings the narrative full circle for us. And they took two princes, the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the what? Upon the what? The rock. And Zeb they slew at the what? Wine press. Where was Gideon in the beginning of the story? The places of fear changed the places of victory. It was on the rock that he put that sacrifice that the angel of the Lord consumed. And God reminded him of his presence. It was at the wine press that God told him that he was a mighty man of valor. These were places of his fear that were now places of of great victory. What does God do through assurance? He takes our fears and turns them into victories. The places where you were afraid, the places where you had no faith, now you stand confidently understanding that it's a place where the enemy gets defeated. Coincidence? No way. Only God. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.